So the organization that I lead right now, uh, we see ourselves as a global playground for social change. Uh, basically what we are is non-profit creative studio for social impact. Who we are are a bunch of activists uh, who actively collaborate with artists, with technologists and with scientists on different creative intervention and art actions. And together we seek new ways to empower activism. This week's guest was named as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum, was featured in Wired's Smartlist and is founder of Fine Acts, a global creative activist platform. Welcome this week's guest, Jana Burer Tavanier. We cover a lot of ground in this episode. Jana discusses the impact of being born in communist Bulgaria and recounts the influence and inspiration of her aunt who resisted the regime through art and humour but was tortured and imprisoned in a mental institution, leading her to ultimately take her own life at age 37. Yana describes how her family conditioned her to live by values and not by the rules imposed by the state, and how this led her to investigative journalism to expose social and human rights abuses, using her writing as a weapon against injustice. Yana goes on to explain how her work to expose the inhumane and degrading treatment in mental institutions in Bulgaria resulted in her being nominated as the World Economic Forum Young Global Leader. We then discuss how she evolved from journalism to activism, recounting her early collaborations with artists to use art as a powerful communication tool to generate empathy. She explains how this led her to forming her activism organisation, Fine Acts, a non-profit creative studio for social impact that leverages the power of play in the process of creating campaigns. Yana describes how her team fused this with hope-based communications and the shifts that are taking place in campaigning for human rights around the world. She discusses the latest thinking on how neuroscience insights are changing the way activists operate and why they're releasing their artworks as open source materials. Having studied leadership at Yale and Oxford, I asked Yana to reflect on the state of political leadership and the evolution of leadership occurring around the world. We also discuss education, curiosity, creativity, and procrastination before we jump into our quickfire questions. There's a lot of inspiration in this episode, but I was really struck by how lack of experience, barriers, and uncertainty never stopped Yana, and how her persistence and acceptance of failure spurred her on to achieve extraordinary impact. I hope you enjoy the heart, humanity, and humility of Yana Brewer-Tavanier. Yana, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Hi, it's so good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And thank you to Jeannie Pinder for the wonderful connection. So we, before we get into your work in plativism, I think you call it, we'd like to understand a bit more about your upbringing and where you were born. I think you're Bulgarian and you live in Sofia most of the, a lot of the time. So yes. maybe you could tell us about um, your upbringing in, in Bulgaria and the impact of your parents and any other people on your journey and the direction you've taken. Of course. I was born in Bulgaria, but I was born in communist Bulgaria. I had lovely parents and grandparents, and these were people, you know, smart, bright, educated, and kind. But back then, in communist Bulgaria, this was not the most important bit, thinking what kind of life you're going to lead. What was most important was whether your your family is communist or it isn't, and mine wasn't. I would like to talk about one person uh, in my life who impacted me the most and who impacted my journey the most. And this was my aunt, Deliana. She was the sister to my father. And also she was 
the closest person I had when I was uh, growing up. She was the youngest after me in my, my family. You know, she was my confidant. Um, my aunt Diana was an artist and a free thinker, which is a dangerous thing in a dictatorship. She, you know, refused to accept the absurdities of the, of the political system in Bulgaria, and she was mocking them openly. And at only 19 years old, my aunt, like many others, uh, was punished for speaking her mind. Uh, this regime, and not only in Bulgaria, but the communist regime across the Eastern Bloc, systemically used psychiatry for political purposes. And they did that to discredit their opponents by labeling them mentally ill. So they would use either you know, political prisons or um, labeling people mentally ill. So my aunt, again, like many others, was um, falsely diagnosed with schizophrenia, which is a condition that she didn't have. This diagnosis gave the regime authorization, uh, you know, to routinely take her away from her home and place her in a mental hospital. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't just this abduction from home uh, or the fact that they fed her with uh, huge doses of um, medication. She was also forced, uh, through her, her life, she was forced to uh, receive um, electroshocks. So yeah, my, my aunt, uh, in these hospitals, for the duration of many years, she was forced to receive electroshocks without anesthesia, without muscle relaxants. This is um, something that right now is deemed torture, but back then it was a routine practice. And yeah, she suffered, you know, apart from apart from anything else, she suffered, you know, uh, bone and muscle and tooth damage from this. And as you can imagine, even though she was the strongest person I knew, she couldn't take it for for very long. And she committed suicide when she was 37. And I was only 17 back then. So when I talk about my up- upbringing and when I talk about my family, this is what shaped me. It was this huge injustice. It was this this personal story. And it's it's my belief that we should not, you know, um, conform to power and that we should always fight for what we believe and that we should always, you know, try to expose and dismantle injustice stems from this. Wow. Uh, <laughs> what a start. So that just... In terms of time-wise, so I can get a, a timestamp on this. So when she was, this was communist Bulgaria, so we're probably talking 1970s, 80s, when she was actively resisting through humor and, and ridiculing the, an the party. An art. Yeah. And what was her, I mean, was, was she a lone individual or was she part of a movement of people that were resisting? She had friends that were, uh, you know, in her um, artistic circles that were also not conforming. Some of her friends had similar, you know, fates. Others were not as vocal as, as she was. Something I need to uh, underline is that while she suffered, you know, all these abuse during communism, she died during democracy. Uh, she committed suicide during democracy. But imagine that this is someone who, for over a decade, uh, suffered this week after week after week and yeah where do you think that character and that desire and the where does her resistance come from because it's, it's one person within your family if she was the only one 
she was not the only one. She was the most vocal. I'm coming from a from a rare family of you know people who were opposing communism, and my entire family, you know, they they were all extremely free. They would tell jokes at the dinner table. This is I was not raised in fear, which I'm so grateful for right now. But she was the most vocal, and she was punished for being. She was the bravest, I would say. Uh, and she was punished for this. But my my entire family, like from my grandfather to you know my father, my my mother, they were all people who believed that you know there are values that we need to lead our lives according to, uh, and not the rules that are imposed uh, on us by the state. Okay, so that being aware of the oh, first of all, do you have um, any of your aunt's artwork? Still, I can send you. I can send you some things. Yeah, I. Most of it is um, unfortunately most of it is is not kept, but I I do have. What was she saying in through the work? What was the sentiment of a resistance? Well, you know, it's it's more of you know the the jokes that she would do, uh, you know, during public events or uh, the fact that she would actively express her opinions during public gatherings. Um, in her work, she would just express a style that is not, she was not political through her work, but like in being very, you know, obvious in her um, political messages in her work, but in her, you know, life and in her being, she was really vocal and really critical of a regime that, that used this as ammunition to destroy her. What incredible bravery to have the the will to do that and the the resistance knowing, because she must have known that the state wouldn't tolerate it. Of course, but her freedom of mind was more important uh, to her than, you know, the the freedom of her body. Reminds me of um, that Che Guevara quote, it's better to die standing than to live your life on your knees. So true. So how did her activism and her bravery and heart impact you while you were growing up and at what point did you suddenly realize that this was actually going to be a central life focus for you? Um, as I mentioned, when my aunt committed suicide, I was 17. Uh, you know, I was about to, to graduate like high school. I was sad for a bit, but then I got really angry. And I think that it was this anger that fueled my past journalism very soon after. I became a journalist when I was 19, and I basically immediately jumped into investigative journalism. And actually, my first focus and the focus of my work for many years was investigating and exposing the conditions in institutions for people with intellectual and mental health disabilities. I started in Bulgaria, but then I expanded this work across Eastern Europe. So this is, yeah, this is how I started. It's not the only thing I did as a journalist. I covered many uh, social and human rights issues, but this stayed as personal focus for my work for many, many years. It was a, a great, you were at school, were you writing, were you journaling? Were you writing the sort of the your thoughts around living through that regime at the time and how was what was it like at school when I was small like when I was really young yes then when I was in high school you know it was already democracy so it wasn't like that I never journaled 
Uh, I don't, unfortunately, I don't journal to this day, but I always wrote. I loved writing. I loved writing, you know, short stories. I loved writing, my, like essays. I love that. And actually, the teachers that that shaped me, I think, through their, you know, mentorship and guidance and support, were always the teachers um, in different schools that were um, like Bulgarian language teachers. It was and literature. They made me love writing. Until I had this personal experience, you know, with uh, with actually losing someone I love so much due to you know the the brutal history, and I was very young before that. I think that I could really grasp what is going on, but then, but then I, as I told you, I became really angry, and I basically decided to to use my love for writing as a weapon to to actually expose and hopefully, you know, to to bring about justice for some people that are suffering. So you were consciously, the path you took through university of doing communications and then your sort of political uh, relations at, at Sofia University was a conscious decision saying, this is where I'm, I'm focusing my life. It was. Uh, the first one, like going into journalism school, was something that I uh, really hoped that is going to happen. It, it is not easy to get in uh, into one or it just wasn't when I was, uh, you know, coming a student. But truth be told, both my education you know, degrees, like both my bachelor's and master's, are things I did on the side while working. Um, I started working at 19. I started working full-time at 19. So my university education is something that I got through you know, a lot of late-night studying, but it's not something that I owe a lot to I owe everything you know to my colleagues in my in the newspapers that I I went to but since I started working you know from the basically very first day of uh, university it's it's my newsrooms and my colleagues that that helped me and shaped me it's not that much education mm-hmm. and where we, t- we always ask at some point during the interview around serendipity and how that has affected someone's journey is there any sort of serendipitous moment that you can recall or recount yeah it's a funny story how I became a journalist actually like how I actually started to work as a journalist I was going to one of the first classes in uh, in my university when I met a friend of my mother's and she said oh what happened like did you get accepted to journalism school and I was so happy to share yes I was, and then she said, you know, that my husband actually is the deputy editor of one of the newspapers in in Bulgaria. And she said, would you like me to talk to him if uh, he would like to offer you like an internship? And I was so grateful. I said, yes, please. And then we had a meeting uh, with uh, this guy and he was, you know, the kindest and the nicest, but he only said, the only, the only, like, I don't know really the word in English, but there is just one thing that you need to be able to do so that, that you can become an intern with us. And this is to work on a computer. And until this moment, I have never, ever touched the computer. Because I didn't mention this, but I'm coming from a very modest background. But I said, of course, of course I can. You know, because this was my foot in the door. And then I went to my first working day and from the beginning, they said, like, you're going to do these two press conferences. And then we already know that from these two press conferences, you need to write two small pieces. 
And then I went to my first two press conferences and then I went back to the office and then I sat in front of this computer and I didn't know, you know, it's like one of these old machines uh, using DOS and I didn't know how to turn it on. And then this deputy editor like, came and said, like, is there a problem? And I said, oh, I've never actually worked with this kind of a computer. And, and then he turned it on for me. Yeah, you're sitting there going, yeah, show me your Apple Mac, 1984. Yeah. <laughs> DOS, are you kidding? <laughs> and I think maybe five hours later, I was ready with typing. And again, this was the first time I typed. I've always written everything by hand until then. But still, you know, I was able to deliver my two articles on time. And then every single morning, I would go to work at 6 a.m., I would, you know, spend two or three hours just typing on the keyboard. And six months later, um, they made me the person responsible for all correspondence in the, um, the entire country of the newspaper. Because I, I really, really gave my best. But um, yeah, this, this was a truly serendipitous moment. And also, you know, kind of um, embracing embracing the notion of failure because I knew that I'm going to fail by saying yes but at the same time I knew that I need to fail first so that I can make it um, and I think this this experience has taught me a lot about how I should approach failure in life. There's also an element of fear as well because you went into something an area of un, un, embracing the unknown is that something that how do you view fear? Yeah, typically I approach it with what's the worst that can happen. I think most people approach view it in this way. But also there is a really beautiful artwork that we created during our latest campaign that is on hope. I'll tell you a little bit more about it. But then the slogan to this artwork, I'll send it to you, is to hope is to embrace uncertainty. And I think that fear and hope are really tightly bound together. And it's what of the two we choose to focus on when we go forward. Yeah. I looked at some of the, the artworks. So they're, they're amazing. It's fantastic. The sort of the resources there. Um, before we come and talk about that, you created a movement called Time Heroes. Could you talk to us about what uh, spurred you on to do that and just explain about the concept? Of course, Time Heroes is currently the largest volunteering platform in Bulgaria. Something that you should know about Bulgaria is that 10 years ago, it was the country with the least number of volunteers per capita in the European Union. And the reason behind that is that during communism, volunteering was obligatory, uh, which is you know, absurd, but it was. We had something that um, was called Lenin Saturdays. And during the Lenin Saturdays, everyone was supposed to be outside and, you know, like clean the public spaces and like, take uh, care of, uh, you know, the streets and the environment, which is really nice. But at the same time, if you weren't there, you would, uh, family would suffer some sort of penalties. So volunteering had a really bad rap in Bulgaria. But at the same time, around me, there were so many. I, like, I had the concept of... Um, Time Heroes when I was already a journalist, because so many people were coming to me, both friends and people I didn't know, saying, hey, you're in this, you know, like you're covering all these social issues, you know, all these nonprofits, like I really want to do something nice for someone, like can you direct me to an organization? 
And I realized that actually volunteering is, requires a lot of effort. So basically me uh, and uh, a bunch of friends decided to make volunteering really easy. So we built a web platform that lists all volunteering opportunities in the country, absolutely all of them. And it's really easy to navigate. You can search based on how much time you have, where you are based right now, what kind of, you know, causes you care most about. It, it could be, you know, like animal rights or like children institutions or elderly or, you know, anything. We have like 17 different types of uh, uh, initiatives on our website. Uh, and I can proudly say that we started uh, Time Heroes in 2011. And today we have a network of 70,000 active volunteers across the country. And on top of that, we have a huge network of, of volunteering clubs uh, in schools and universities, again, in the entire in country. And I think this, this confirms my perhaps um, naive notion that people are, in, most people are intrinsically good, intrinsically, sorry, are good by heart, are good by nature but that you need to build infrastructure for this, you know, for this to emerge, for this to manifest itself. So, yeah, I think that with Time Heroes, we've built this infrastructure for good and we've helped people, you know, find the best initiative, the best cause that really reflects what they, their, you know, heart beats for. And this initiative, I assume that that was that that led you to be nominated by the World Economic Forum to be one of their young global leaders in 2012. Actually, no, it was both. No? Oh, right. Okay. Thank you. This is something I love, but it's a project that I did on the site of my other work. It was my, I mentioned them, the series of investigations I did in institutions for people with intellectual and mental health disabilities across Eastern Europe was what got me my TED Fellowship and my World Economic Forum Young Global Leaders nomination. It was this series of texts done over uh, several years that were actually the reason that I got these accolades. Could you just explain a bit more about that investigation, what it covered? So it, I started going in these institutions, as I told you, like the backstory of my aunt and how I really cared about the like, people that are that are mentally ill or are labeled mentally ill uh, or people with intellectual disabilities, how they are treated. Because across Eastern Europe and in Bulgaria particularly, the, the, the level of treatment in these homes, and like when I say homes, imagine warehouses for people, like places where hundreds of people are, are being house slash stored at the same time and these are places you know where you would see the most incredible like human rights violations people being you know like abused mistreated and and that would die from malnutrition or neglect so what i did uh, was already in 2002 i think very shortly after i became a journalist i started going in these places um and typically i would go there undercover and I would pose as someone who is from a charity uh, organization and not as a journalist. Because if you pose as someone, someone from a charity that is interested in giving out money, they tend to show you everything. And if you go there as a journalist, which I've done as well, you are likely to see maybe 5% of the institution. Everything else would be, you know, there would be hundreds of people behind locked doors and you wouldn't be able to, to see them. So yeah, I started doing that and I've been in tens and tens of institutions in 
Bulgaria, Romania, Croatia, um, and so on and so on, so on, like across the entire uh, Eastern European uh, region. And yes, I would go there undercover. I would then write my pieces. I would publish in different European outlets. And I would try to expose the inhuman and degrading treatment that was happening in these institutions. But in all honesty, I was really trying to close these places down. I'm one of these journalists that um, don't just think that journalism should be, um, you know, a mirror like that is reflecting the reality, but um, that we sometimes have the, the moral obligation to actually advocate for change and me like visiting these places it was not just enough for me to say what I see there I really wanted to close them down and the truth is that I was able to do this just once and this was really frustrating and this is actually the experience that led me to to activism I left journalism because of this frustration and I moved to activism but maybe before I go on to explain, you know, my activism path. I can tell you a little bit about these places. The first time I entered such an institution, as I said, 2002, the first woman that I saw there was, it was February, a lot of snow, a lot of ice in a big yard in a very, very remote um, Bulgarian village. These places are always in remote villages so that these people are hidden. And these, they were built during communism because like we had to present ourselves as the perfect society. So uh, people with um, any kind of a disability or condition had to be hidden away. So I went to this institution and there was this woman coming to greet us, walking barefoot on the snow. And in her hands, she held two chunks of snow and she was eating them. And I thought, this is, you know, this is so crazy. This is, you know, so, so weird. And then I realized that she is not eating this snow because she was, um, sick. She was eating this snow because for the past one week, this institution didn't have any water and she was eating the snow so she could actually drink. And this is just, you know, one snippet of what life an institution is like. I don't want to go into details because this is going to be very you know, traumatic, but um, yeah, these are places that, that still exist. But these but countries, but countries in the Eastern Bloc are, uh, have not become part of the European Union. Isn't this something that should be regulated by the EU? It is not regulated. And monitored? It's about um, how you frame it, whether you see it as a social issue or a human rights issue. If um, the European um, Union decides to view, it, view this as a social issue, this is not being regulated you know, by, by the common uh, EU law. If uh, we are able to you know, show that this is a huge human rights violation, then it becomes an issue. And... You know, from time to time, this has been flagged and there has been progress. Uh, but still, we're so far away from treating these people with the dignity and respect and the level of care that they deserve. It's crazy we think about the rapid rise in uh, acceptance of mm-hmm. mental health and the, the breaking of the stigma that's happened recently because of obviously the, the lockdown. But just generally in the in the West, you you consider mental health to be something people feel compassionate about and treat people with respect and dignity. But it's incredible to discover that the, this condition still exists. I mean, there would be an uproar if were if people heard in 
I mean, I'm just, I'm, sh- I'm literally shocked that, that that still, these institutions still exist. And what's happening in the country in, in whether it be Romania or Bulgaria or Hungary about these institutions, are people aware of it? I think people are aware of something that we as activists need to constantly deal with is the increased lack of sensitivity towards social issues. And I think it is about, and actually this is what I do right now in my current job, but it is about how do we make people care. And actually here I, I do have a story that is very connected to this, how do we make people care? And like it's it explains why I do what I do. And it answers your question, what is happening with these, uh, with these institutions right now? So, as I told you, I moved to, to activism. I, I abandoned journalism because I thought that I'm not you know, being able to, to reach my true, true goal, true purpose. So I moved to activism. I was invited to, to establish the campaigns and communications program in the leading human rights nonprofit in Bulgaria called the Bulgarian Helsinki Committee. And I went there and I said yes to a job I had no idea how to do. I think this is a repetition of my previous story. But what I did is that I bought, I think, four books on Amazon about campaigning. And I read them. And then I thought, you know, I anyway don't know what to do. So I'm not going to follow any playbook. And I'm just going to experiment. And I'm going to try to collaborate with people that are going to, you know, help me tell a better story because I've been telling this story for years and I was obviously not doing, you know, the most effective job. So that's why I decided to, you know, be as collaborative as possible. And here comes my first uh, story of collaboration. I uh, invited an artist that I knew, an amazing artist in Bulgaria, to collaborate with me on um, visualizing the... A series of investigations that we did in children's institutions um, for kids with disabilities in Bulgaria. So uh, this artist did an amazing image that from afar looked like a very cute children's drawing, but when you took it in your hands, you realized this section infographic that depicts that in the past 10 years in Bulgaria, 238 children died in institutions for kids with disabilities. There were some, you know, rays in the sun. And actually, if you look at the rays, you would see that these rays represent, the, the length of the rays represent the different months of the year. And you could clearly see that most children died during the winter. And then from the, you know, for the, there were some tulips that were like different heights. And you, this was like, again, an infographic about the reasons that uh, these children were dying. And you could again see that most died from, uh, malnutrition, some died from cold, some died from black. And we placed this image on tens of thousands of uh, free cards, you know, the types of cards that, that you would find, you know, in like cultural spaces, uh, like cinemas or restaurants and cafes. So we placed them there and we had the pre-written uh, address at the back for the Council of Ministers in Bulgaria. And there was just a, a, a free space for people to write their own message and place a stamp. So thousands of people mailed these images. This was the image that grabbed people by the throat. Thousands of people were compelled, uh, you know, to to demand to demand justice for these kids' deaths and to demand demand change. This became such a huge campaign, and actually, this campaign fueled a much larger campaign by many, many more organizations. That in the end 
led to the closure of all 25 institutions in Bulgaria for children. So, you know, this, this was my, my first realization of how much art can do to communicate human rights issues, but also how much art can do to actually like bring and cause empathy in people. And yes, this is, this is actually the story that, that led me to the, the current job that I have in, in Fine Arts. So Fine Arts you formed in 2014? Yes. Uh-huh. And that campaign that you ran with the, the cards, was that prior to Fine Arts or was it? It is prior to Fine Arts. This is 2010-2011. Uh, in terms of that, winning that award and being recognized as a young global leader in 2012, you went to Yale to focus on leadership. Then you also went to Harvard. What was it that uh, made you focus on leadership specifically? It is, the truth is that these amazing educational opportunities were being offered by the World Economic Forum. We still, as young global leaders, had to apply, and I was really lucky that I was selected for yes, both you know, Yale and Harvard, but also Oxford. These programs were only for leadership, so this was what uh, was being offered. But they were incredible in terms of the skills that I was able to, you know, maybe master there. But most of all, they were incredible because of the people that I met there, and you know, incredible, brave people that were not shying away from doing just one thing. As I was uh, in the beginning, you know, I was, I was initially I was just a journalist, and then I became just an activist. But these experiences helped me, you know, become more confident in, you know, doing many, many things at the time. These meetings, these, you know, these these connections that I formed, and this is this is why I'm the person I'm today because I met enough people that were, you know, astonishing enough and brave enough to follow and pursue their dreams. In more than one way, their dreams, their true north, north, their their actual passions. There are more than one way that we can achieve what we strive for, and I think there is a beauty in in trying and in failing and in trying again. So a lot of people get into activism and embrace all the tools and the techniques that have been tried and tested over the years. What was it that sparked the idea in you to focus on? the lack of creativity in activism and social impact. The story that I just mentioned, the one with you know my first collaboration with an artist, gave me a very clear insight of what art can do. Afterwards, I did a series of collaborations when I was still in this big non-profit focusing on human rights in Bulgaria. And then at a certain point, I decided I want to translate my extremely you know successful experiences in creative activism into global organization that is designed to actually help uh, activists and nonprofits around the world be more impactful and devise tools and solutions that can help them and also devise campaigns and artworks that can amplify different human rights messages. And this is how I came to the idea of Fine Acts, which is my current organization where I am both co-founder and director. And we're living at a time where I don't think probably since the 1960s, there's been so much activism and resistance happening around the world. I mean, I was listening to a podcast yesterday about 
the marches and the, the activism happening on the ground in small towns in England to support the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's really supporting what's happening in America, which has yeah. never have happened before. But given that we're in this, this period of vibrant and energized activism, you've talked in the past about burnout in that. And how do we avoid burnout at this point? Because I think everyone's feeling particularly with the Black Lives Matter movement, it's, uh, it's hitting a pivotal point and that mm-hmm. change probably is going to result. But there's always a situation where, you know, we can see even here where I live, there were marches happening every day for, for a couple of weeks, but now it's dwindling and it's maybe only a weekend. How would you guide people that are managing these movements to ensure that they remain energized, that their momentum is maintained? So the organization that I lead right now, uh, we see ourselves as a global playground for social change. Uh, basically, what we are is a non-profit creative studio for social impact. Who we are are a bunch of activists uh, who actively collaborate with artists, with technologists, and with scientists on different creative intervention and art actions. And together, we seek new ways to empower activism. When I talk about play, it is, this is what I mean. Multidisciplinary, creative play. Play with people that are nothing like you. Play across disciplines. Something that uh, I want to mention about play is that play doesn't, doesn't just spark better ideas. There is a famous psychiatrist and play researcher, Dr. Stuart Brown, who said that nothing lights up the brain like play uh, and that the opposite of play is not work, it's depression. Yeah, I've heard you say that. Yeah. So, so to your question, yes, I, I suffered burnout several years ago, and it was this approach, uh, not trying to solve the issues that I'm faced with by myself, but actively seeking others, me becoming we. The others that I seek are people that are, you know, not just, are not a reflection of myself, but I can actually bring entirely new perspectives and new skills to the table. This togetherness, um, this lack of rules, which is really important for us, we see experimentation as vital to our work. This is what we call play. Our process is playful. Our outcomes are not always playful. Sometimes they're very serious. But the process we have for it is, um, you know, we, we just come together, we are faced with an issue, and we have an unstructured, completely, you know, embracing failure kind of process, uh, embracing potential failure. And yeah, and it works. And we have fun in along the way. But also, we are able to devise again, tools and solutions that are actually impactful and actually can either raise awareness or drive to specific um, solutions to human rights issues. Because wouldn't say I've been on quite a few of, or certainly out on uh, the streets during a lot of the marches, and there's a lot of anger on display, mm-hmm. uh, a very different emotion to what you would describe as a, a playful element of activism. So, and I think a lot of people see activism as usually fueled by anger and a desire to change something and a feel of a sense, a sense of injustice. Though I, I was, just to counter that, I did go on the bike the New York cyclists uh, got 10,000 uh, people on the streets last weekend. And that was very uh, good humored and playful mm-hmm. um, just because of the, the amount of bikes that were there on the streets. 
and it, I suppose maybe it's just the different demographic that was there. But it is something that, how do you counter that? How do you manage something when there might be, whether it be Black Lives Matter or it be climate, how do you inject play into a movement, into a community of activists and, and educate them to unlock the power of play in their resistance? I think that play is really existing hand in hand, in hand with hope. And there is a new trend uh, and there is a new concept called hope-based communications, which is uh, the brainchild of uh, the brilliant Thomas Coombs, who is the ex-head of brand for Amnesty. But hope-based communications stems from science, uh, you know, from neuroscience and behavioral science. And it talks about the fact that we as human rights activists need to make shifts in the way that uh, we talk about human rights, because the way that we talk about human rights is very ineffective. And there are five shifts that we need to make so that we can be more effective in today's day and age. And one of them is talk about solutions and not problems. The other one is stand for what we are for and not uh, and not just show what we oppose. There is um, like empathize uh, support for heroes and not pity for victims. There is another one, uh, you know, show that we got this because if we just talk about you know the human rights movement under attack, this kind of makes people wonder how effective we are. And I think that more and more people are grasping the value of hope-based communications. And I think that it's not that difficult to make people understand that we need to change the way that we talk about uh, human rights and that just exposing the, the issues just doesn't work anymore. It might have worked before, but we need to find new ways. And there is something that I want to, uh, when I mention science, I spent half a year as a Fulbright scholar researching specifically that, researching human rights innovation, but specifically in, in the part making people care. So how can we make people care? And I looked into uh, different um, you know, conclusions of uh, behavioral and psychology and like neuroscience. There are several things we need to remember when we are doing our activism. Opinions change not through more information, but through compelling empathy-inducing experiences. Art can trigger empathy. But something very important, when we're trying to provoke an, an emotional response, be it with our art or with our writing, this should be done very carefully because people um, would shut down if you simply evoke sadness or guilt or fear. And it's proven that campaigns that bring hope or inspire hope are most effective. It's really funny that the, if you think about this, how it overlaps with positive psychology and a lot of the, the tools that are used working with individuals on a societal level. It's fascinating. Absolutely. It's almost like societal level positive psychology for yeah. change. Yeah, it's really interesting. And more and more people around me, even people that I you know, haven't met yet, uh, I see work, activist work that is that is being shaped by this notion, being beat knowingly, like beat like following the five shifts or just intuitively understanding, hey, what I'm doing is not really effective. So, you know, let's try, let's try a shift. 
It's actually really funny when you think about someone like Shepard Fairey, mm-hmm. who did the Obama campaign in 2008 around hope and change. Mm-hmm. It was all grounded in a positive vision of the future. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I know that the UN put out the global call to creatives to come out with artwork and ideas and creative ideas around COVID-19. And I know that Shepard Fairey and a group of other artists created one I can't remember what it was called, but they did some wonderful artwork around COVID-19. Uh, yes. I should find it and I'll put it in the show notes. I can't remember the name for the group. But when I was looking at your artwork with Fine, fine Arts, it, it felt very similar. Um, so the, the group I think that you're referring to is Amplifier. Um, and Amplifier is an amazing group that is, I think, co-founded by Shepard Ferry. They did an amazing art campaign that was trying to you know, focus on celebrating, you know, the first responders, uh, celebrating the, the essential workers, like all these, all these shifts and changes we need to do in our lives, like, you know, wear masks, wash our hands, everything was being, all these aspects of the pandemic were being communicated beautifully by the, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of people that submitted works to the Amplifier campaign. And I really celebrate them for this. We did a separate campaign. We launched it together with Amplifier. We wanted to do a campaign that brings people hope. So we commissioned, I think, 50 artists from around the world to create artworks that are around, you know, hope and yeah, uh, and all these positive aspects of life, what, what life will be after pandemic. But we had one ask, don't use any, you know, any imagery, any symbols that would remind people of the pandemic. Let's, let's give people hope to, you know, to tackle COVID despair, but let's really try to make it bigger than the current moment. Let's be able to look at these images in five years time and still they need to be working. And after, after we did this, uh, we also opened up for our submissions for an open call and again, I think 68 more artists we selected from a much larger number of several hundred. And so currently we have, for the Spring of Hope campaign, we have over 100 selected works from 80 artists based in 30 different countries. And this is a campaign that was widely celebrated both online by thousands and thousands of people online, but also different organizations endorse it and uh, Many media outlets also amplified it so that it can be the, the impactful campaign that we are proud with today. That's amazing. And it's called what? This Spring for? Spring of Hope spring is the of name hope. of our campaign. Yeah, I can send you the, the link. Yeah, it's for the show notes. Yeah. And by the way, we have a, a campaign going on right now. And I think it's it would be amazing if you, if you can mention it. It's we collaborate with 12 black artists on open pack of 24 protest posters. And the posters are amazing and powerful and some, some are fierce and some are extremely hopeful, but all are brilliant and beautiful, all are in black and white and all are free. Everything that we do, there's something that I didn't mention and why we, we do these kind of campaigns and why the way that we work is different uh, from anyone else. When we do these um, these images, then we license them under a Creative Commons license that allows not just free use, but also free adaptation, meaning that any activist or any organization around the world can take these, 
and can use them in their communications or campaigning. They can you know, change the slogan, put a logo, make it their own. And in this way, we are really solving an, a problem that um, you know, grassroots or small organizations uh, have that is lack of resources, lack of money to actually you know, produce powerful imagery while powerful imagery is so important when we are trying to communicate our work. That's brilliant. And where would we find these uh, artworks? On the site? It's again on the, on the site. It's um, the current campaign with the protest posters around Black Lives Matter is um, on finax.co slash BLN. Okay. We'll share that with some people we know here. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's great. I want to talk a bit about your insights from your work in leadership. You've obviously read, studied a lot in different times. And at the moment, right now, we're in, and in fact, I was starting to listen to, and I'll share this with you as well. It was an interview with Paul Mason, mm-hmm. the British uh, journalist and writer and activist as well, who wrote a lot about the future of capitalism. And he's just had a new book published and he's brilliant talking about the the world, the state we're in at the moment in terms of the impact of what we're dealing with, with climate, with artificial intelligence, with racial injustice. And he's talked a lot about leadership and the state of leadership we have in the world at the moment. And, you know, whether it be in the US, in the UK, probably in Eastern Europe, we know that there's, I think it's in Hungary and Turkey, you know, we've got leadership that seem to be trying to hold on to power Uh using instruments of power that are out of step with what seemed to be the the sentiment of humanity and where we feel we are we want to go i just love your perspective on on that and are we at some sort of watershed moment in society i think we're at a at a critical moment i think that obviously we're uh, witnessing a rise in authoritarian leadership and if we don't act now what generations in the past worked for will will be lost i think it is as grave as this Talking about leadership, I choose to look at it positively, though. I think that today it might seem that, you know, anything we read and learned about leadership in the past is actually wrong. And it might look like that the ones that, that, they, that lie or manipulate or steal or scare or scream are the leaders that people actually want to follow. But I still believe in the power of quiet, quiet leadership and, you know, in honest leadership, in hopeful leadership and in kind leadership. And I think that actually the current liars and screamers are what we needed to reevaluate uh, what we stand for and what we oppose. And I think that because of this, because of these processes we're going through, the honest and hopeful leadership will emerge stronger than ever. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, we are, I mean, I, I think this uh, November is going to be a really interesting time. and. Yes. Even if we just see in the what happened the other day in some of the people that are challenging incumbents, uh, even in the Democratic Party here, mm-hmm. show signs of what you probably call hopeful leadership, that there is something, uh, some changes afoot. So let's see. I'm right this November. Mm-hmm. Where do you see Five Acts being in five in five years from now? Where do you hope it will be? We are an organization that doesn't really have a very solid structural phase we're very fluid we follow what is going on and we devise the tools and solutions depending on what we feel like is needed at the moment so this is difficult for me 
I don't know what we're going to be looking like in five years, but I do hope that we are as useful as possible, as global as possible, as effective as possible, that we are still driven by our love for, you know, experimentation and, and playfulness and that the, the solutions that we offer and the open source formats that we that we devise and give to the world are being widely used and embraced and actually can show results. Uh, we also like to ask our guests about education. I mean, education obviously is core to where we where we find ourselves in the future, what we teach our children. What changes would you make to the education system that could improve the future knowledge or behavior of a, a generation of youth? I can talk about the um, educational system in my country and I can talk with confidence about what I can I would like to change here. The way that we were raised in school was that it was the people who could repeat what was being thought. These were the people who were celebrated and the people who were trying to show independent thought were actually punished for this. We were and still are like little parrots that are only being fed if we say the right thing. And I think that schools, both here and anywhere, are the places where we need to learn how to think, but not what to think. Hmm. That's brilliant. Yeah. There's a, a woman that we interviewed called Julia Black. She was a journalist as well, a filmmaker. And she took her till she was 40 to discover, she said, her purpose in life. And it was to focus on education. And she's created this, this movement. It's an organization called Explorium. And the technique for children and to education is called Light Up. It's all about individualistic learning and really trying to uh, discover the passion and the talent of the child and what interests them and then focusing on that. And it involves the parents as well. And it's an online platform. It is completely radically changing the mm. process of education and what curriculum is and the way we think about it as a, a mass that everyone sits in the classroom and be taught to think or what to learn. And it's all based on finding that uniqueness of every child. So yeah, I'd urge you to have a, a listen to her. She's fascinating. That's great. I will. We've talked about serendipity. Obviously, and you've talked about fear and, un and uncertainty and failure. As a journalist, uh, you have to be innately curious, especially an investigative journalist, and you've got to be creative. And creativity is a part of what you're, is, a, is the very core of what you're doing with Finax. How do you maintain and, and feed your curiosity and continue to feed it? That's a good question. I don't really know the answer. I think that I am curious by nature and I've always been. And I am, my entire team, my brilliant team, uh, are all amazing and curious and multifaceted people. And it is, like, for me, I'm one of the really lucky people that uh, go to work every morning with joy because of the, you know, because, because it, it is really like going to the playground. You have no idea what is going to be happening this day and you just get to go back home at the end of the day with you know, the amazing solutions that you and your team were able to like, de devise together. 
So I think it's just something that stems from from my core and from the people that I uh, have surrounded myself with. I don't know if this answers the question, but <laughs> yeah. Does procrastinate? Do you ever procrastinate? I do procrastinate all the time. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought so. I just the, the last person. <laughs> It goes against the very core of what an activist sounds should be. No, I do. I procrastinate and I embrace procrastination. And I think that procrastination, it is actually an extremely productive time for a lot of people. Because I think that we might not realize it, but at the back of our minds, we're actively thinking and solving and connecting the dots. So that when the real deadline comes, we can give our deepest and richest and most thoughtful work that would otherwise have not been possible. I think that procrastination is in a way the gift of time that we give ourselves, but we don't think that we actually need or deserve, but we do. No, I totally agree with you. I, I, we interviewed a guy called Andrew, Andrew Santella wrote a book about procrastination. Hmm. And after, you know, it's something that I've always felt guilty about. And yeah. after interviewing him, I suddenly sort of reorientated my view of procrastination to see it as a bedfellow of creativity and curiosity. It's just that, so you know, true. like we've said before, that life happens for you, not to you. It's life, something telling you, you're not ready yet for that idea. You're not ready yet to write that paper. And the ideas, the right idea is going to come to you at a certain point. So I'm totally with you on what you said. So, okay, we've covered that. Uh, I'm just conscious of time. So I'll jump through a couple of questions. Yeah, setbacks. It, we say it's not the circumstances that define you, it's your response. What's your response been to sort of circumstances that were pivotal in your life? If we look at even just the current situation around uh, covid we had to cancel our biggest event for the year, something that we have worked for and towards for many months. Uh, it was a bit disheartening, but at the same time, it's happening to basically anyone. But this gave us the time and the space to actually sit down and think, okay, what do people really need right now? And we devised two of our biggest campaigns so far, the one on hope, and the one um, with the um, Black Lives Matter protest posters in this space, in this in the same time while we would have had this other event. And I think that being flexible and agile is key to you know not be ridden by by frustration. And I think that in, in terms of a life approach to setbacks, I think that we can and we should take challenges as clay in our hands and mold uh, solutions out of them. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder where the, the world would be like if we hadn't had this COVID-19. Would there be a Black Lives Matter movement at the scale that we're facing at the moment? Mm. You know, if there hadn't been that feeling of the, and the, the emotions, the pent-up emotions from lockdown, would we be seeing the sort of the, the global uprising and of of anger and, and an emotion that we're witnessing and hope for change as well? Maybe. Maybe it has some effect, but at the same time it is so overdue 
And I'm so happy that we're witnessing this right now in the way that it is becoming a truly global force that anyone should, you know, reckon with. I think that is it is one of the most important activism movements we've observed in uh, recent years, and it's and it's honest and it's raw and it's it's so important. And I I hope that more and more people finally realize and wake up to the in, enormous injustice that we have been neglecting knowingly neglecting in the past years and that are late but you know still that are going to join the fight totally let's get to the quick five questions what principles do you stand by um this can be a long and boring list so i'm just going to mention <laughs> one which is kindness yeah it's a very powerful principle and very powerful emotion and act uh, what hard choices have you had to make that have been tough at the time but turned out to be the right decision? Again, these would be otherwise very lengthy stories. I had to make many hard choices in my life. But I think that's something that I, I need to always remember is that cutting off toxicity is always hard, but always right. Yeah, there's, good, there's a story behind that, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> okay, for another time. Where do you go to discover new ideas? Um, I would say that to discover new ideas, I go nowhere and do nothing. Because I think that for me, at least, it is in these rare moments of absolute quiet that allow, you know, ideas that are scared and hiding from the, the noise and clutter in my life to actually emerge. And when I think about my ideas, I think of them as, you know, wild animals. I Animals, I believe that I form them all the time. You know, I don't think that they're being formed when I just uh, sit alone in a room. But I can only see them uh, when I sit still and very quiet and I let them come to me. But if I make, you know, any sudden move or any distraction or if I look at my phone, this is when they, they run away and I never see them. So I think that this is so important for me. And I believe for many other people today to actually carve out these times and these pockets of time to sit still and, and let ideas come to us because we have actually very little idea what is going on in our heads. And um, I think we need to have these spaces to actually listen to ourselves. We have a question that we ask. I've, I've just, I've, since sending the questions last week, I was rethinking these two questions that were jarring with me a little bit because of the type of answers we get. One was about mm -hmm. what we learned from the past and the other is about where would you go back in history. So I've rewritten it to say, if you could return to one day or one night in history to learn something from the past that could help you change the future, what would it be? I think that's a big question. It is. <laughs> and you don't have to answer it because I rewrote it and didn't send it to you. So it's I'm putting no. you on the spot. No, honestly, I was trying to think of a moment in history. It is, you know, there are so many moments that, that I would, I wish I would have, you know, been present and uh, learned more about them. But at the same time, I do see, I do feel that our personal histories teach us more about life than the history of the world. So if I need to honestly answer your question about which point in the in time in my life, I would return. It would be the last time I saw my father because it, I would have stayed longer and 
I would have said more. So this would be my 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 answer to your question. Yeah, and that's yeah, we've had that from quite a few people as well. So yeah. it's it's from the heart. What's a question no one asks you that you wish they would? Maybe, <laughs> but maybe how do you stay hopeful? Okay, and and we shouldn't really ask for the answer, but why not? How do you stay hopeful? I stay hopeful because I don't have any other choice. That's my honest answer. Who has made you reevaluate yourself? That would be my husband, who is my teammate in everything that I do, but is also my head coach and is my biggest cheerleader. <laughs> what does he do? He does everything that I do. He is the co-founder of Sign Heroes. He is the co-founder of Finax. Uh, in Finax, he is um, he has like more of an observative uh, function more of an advisory role, but currently he's building, we're doing like a huge platform for social engaged art, for free social engaged art. So everything I spoke about, these illustrations that are free to, you know, use and adapt by activists and nonprofits, we're actually building a beautiful platform that is going to feature such illustrations, hundreds of them on any kind of social issue. So anyone can go and take the image they, they want and need for, for their campaign so he's building that at the moment wow oh look forward to seeing that it's very exciting it should be out in a month so i can send you the link yeah it's ready please uh impossible question what would your advice be to someone that's about to graduate go to school study that's got a dream and a big goal and ambition that's being told by someone forget it that's impossible i would say that sometimes impossible is just a word that people that are scared by the vastness of your dreams used to make them as small as they are sometimes. That always, impossible is the best word that you should be hoping for. Because I think that impossible is the word that shows that you're on the right track, you're out of uh, the comfort zone, you're out of any box, and you are not bound by what is perceived safe and you know, you're truly pushing boundaries, meaning that you're truly free. That's a great answer. I love that. I'll use, we're gonna, we, we sometimes put out on Instagram little quotes from people they say in the interviews. So that's, that's going to be one of them. Yeah, so. awesome. Uh, just finish up with these questions. A bit of fun. What's your go-to karaoke song? It's Creep by Radiohead. <sighs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Set off time up in New York when you're next year. <laughs> I would love that. I love karaoke. <laughs> Yeah, right. Okay, that's a good one. Okay, during lockdown, we've all been watching more Amazon, Apple, Netflix series, documentaries. Anything of note that you would recommend someone watch? I would really recommend Afterlife. Ricky Gervais? Yeah, the specific show. Yeah, definitely the best. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. What book would you like us to offer guests that come up with the best comments in the comment section of Instagram? I would really, really love it if you offer Figuring by Maria Popova. Huh? She's a fellow Bulgarian. Uh, she is the founder of Brain Pickings. Yeah. She's amazing. And the she book is, amazing, is yeah. really, really incredible. So, yeah, this book. She's Bulgarian? I didn't know. Maria she was Bulgarian. Yeah. She's Bulgarian and she is one of my board members in Finax. Oh, brilliant. Wow. It's wonderful. So, yes, this book. 
All right. Well, final question leads us to who should we interview next? My recommendation for this one slot would be Saf Rogers. Sorry, say that again? Saf Rogers. Saf Rogers, okay. Yes. This is a filmmaker, a writer, a public speaker. We did the TED residency together in 2018. And Saf is really a brilliant, brilliant uh, documentary director. Uh, and in 2019, he won the Filmmaker of the Year Award at the Austin uh, Revolution Film Festival. Oh, that would be wonderful. He sounds really interesting. Yes. Okay. I'll send you the profile of Saf. I didn't mention, uh, but um, Saf is trans. Um, mm-hmm. The work that uh, he does is specifically focused on uplifting the rights of uh, the LGBTQ community um, and through basically everything that um, he does. Cool. Oh, brilliant. We look forward to that one. A couple of things just before I round up and, and, and sort of thank you. There's two people that you should probably be aware of that we interviewed. Uh, one is Nick Fitz, mm-hmm. who runs a platform called Give Momentum. Well, the app's called Momentum. Um, mm-hmm. But it's the the app is I think if you search give momentum you'll find it. What they've done is they're disrupting philanthropy by creating it, it, these daily actions or habits that you turn into repeatable giving opportunities, okay. and it can be a, anything anything as simple as buying a buying a coffee. But it's really creative what they do, and the one that's getting the most traction is every time Trump tweets, you give ten cents to criminal justice reform or to Black Lives Matter. That's amazing. So, you, so you're turning things that yeah. are uh, things that are potentially negative into positives. Mm-hmm. And I think you'd really in, like his platform and like what he's doing. And it might be, the reason I mentioned, I just think that given that what you're doing with your art and your activism, if there's some sort of crossover there. So have a look at his platform. I love this. I will. Thank you. Sounds great. And the other person as well that um, we interviewed and that Bettina knows very well is uh, Chantel Martin. Yeah, so check out Chantel Martin and okay. her work because she's all about identity through her uh, work, asking questions of who are you and are you you? And she's a bit of an activist herself and what she's doing. We always like to connect some of our guests where we think there's opportunity to um, exchange ideas. So have a look at it if you wanted an introduction. I love this. Thank you so much. Yeah, both, both sound, sound amazing. So just uh, a roundup uh, to say thank you for your time and, and the work you're doing and to acknowledge you for your, your heart, your fight for justice, clear courage in the face of adversity. And Clayton Christensen, who's recently passed away, uh, wrote a book around creative disruption. And I think you're, and it's around industry, but I think what you're doing around the areas of justice is positive creative disruption because uh, you're changing society through your your fine acts. So just uh, acknowledge you for that and the hope that you're probably giving other people. So thank you for all that. And it's a testament to your Aunt Deliana. Thank you so much, um, Mark. This is really, really kind and yeah, such a generous way to, to end this conversation. Thank you so much. And thank you for giving us a platform and thank you for amplifying our work and Yeah, this was truly a very enjoyable conversation. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast player to listen and subscribe. 
This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time. <laughs>